Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'd like to thank Ladder for supporting my podcast. Ladder makes it quick and easy to get covered for life insurance. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold. Well, the rotation from momentum to value continues. The Dow Jones up 123 points on Friday, although at one point I think it was up closer to 300. So finishing off the day highs but clearly in the black, up about 0.36 of a percent. In contrast, the NASDAQ was down on the day, 64.75 points, just under a half of 1%. But I really want to focus on another part of the rotation out of momentum into value as it applies to the move out of Bitcoin and into gold which continued on Friday. In fact, Bitcoin came under a lot of selling pressure. They're blaming it on news out of China that China is going to be cracking down on Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin trading. But, you know, all of these China rumors have been going on the entire time that Bitcoin was going up. So I really don't think that China is the reason that Bitcoin is going down. It may be the excuse because whenever the markets are moving, the media is always trying to figure out what's to blame or come up with an excuse. But if it wasn't China, I think it would have been something else. I think Bitcoin was going to go down regardless. And so they're looking for something to blame it on rather than accept reality that the bull market may be over and the bear market may have begun this was a bubble looking for a pin and if it didn't find China it would have found something else but meanwhile it certainly was a bit of a catalyst for the big drop yesterday because Bitcoin was making a comeback it was up at around 41,000 as I said on my last podcast 
I thought the 42,000 to 43,000 area would be big overhead resistance. And I was exactly right because I don't even think we ever managed to hit 4,200. That's how strong the resistance is. And that's because that was the previous low. So the people who bought the last dip that thought they were getting a good bargain, we can't even rally as high as the previous dip. Now, the current dip buyers or the most recent dip was down to 30,000. And so far, if you manage to buy 30,000, you're still in the black. But late yesterday, the price of Bitcoin, this is after the market closed because it was weak all day. It was below 40,000 into the close, maybe about 38,000, 37,000. But then slightly after, maybe within an hour of the close of the U.S. stock market, Bitcoin tanked again and it got all the way down to about 33,500. So still hasn't taken out the 30,000 low from Wednesday, I believe. Although I think next week there's a very strong chance that we will take out that low. But we did get some dip buyers coming in. As I am recording this podcast here early on Saturday morning, Bitcoin has now recovered back above 38,000 but it's still decisively below that 42,000 resistance. And my read on it is that we're going to be staying below that number as we head down to retest the 30,000 level once again. Now, I don't think that level is going to hold. I expect this market to move considerably lower. You know, if this new bear market. And it is a bear market. I mean, everybody wants to deny that Bitcoin is in a bear market. Look, it's down about 42% from its high. And at its low point, it was down about 54% from its high. Now, I don't know by what definition you could look at a 50% decline in an asset and not conclude that that asset is in a bear market. I mean, a lot of people want to say, well, it's not a bear market for Bitcoin. Well, it sure looks like a bear market. But if this Bitcoin bear is similar to the last big Bitcoin bear market, meaning if 65,000 is the equivalent of 20,000 back in 2017, this bear market has a long way to run because that bear market dropped by about 85%. Remember, Bitcoin bottomed out at around 3,100, 3,200, and it took about a year for that bear market to run its course. You know, they called it the, the Bitcoin winter. Well, Bitcoin hodlers better get ready for an even colder, more brutal winter than the last one. Because if this bear market is only as bad as that one, the bottom's not going to be in until around 10,000, and it's going to take about a year to run its course. Only I think this bear market could be far more brutal than the last one for a number of reasons. One reason in particular is that there is a tremendous amount of leverage now in Bitcoin that did not exist back in 2017. Because what's happened over the past year or six months is a lot of people have had huge gains in Bitcoin and they've wanted to spend some of the money, but they didn't want to sell any of their precious Bitcoin because they expected the price to keep on going up. Well, what they were able to do was borrow against the Bitcoin. And when you borrow against your Bitcoin, A, you don't have to sell Bitcoin. So, you know, if the price keeps going up, you keep gaining. 
But also, if you sell Bitcoin, you pay a capital gains tax. But if you borrow against your Bitcoin, the money you're borrowing comes out tax-free because you didn't actually realize a gain. You just took out a loan. So you have a lot of leverage. Also, I think a lot of the traders now who are just trading Bitcoin are using leverage to increase the size of their bets to increase the size of their gains. I think that what you're going to see, especially if we go and break below 30,000 and head down towards 20,000, is I think a lot of the margin-related buyers are going to have margin calls that they are incapable of meeting. And so a lot of the people who borrowed against their Bitcoin are now going to be forced to sell the dip. Even though they may want to buy the dip, they'll have no choice. They're going to have to sell the dip because they're getting a margin call. So none of this existed back in 2017. There was no leverage. There were no margin calls. And so if we could have an 85% decline in a market that had no leverage, imagine the magnitude of the decline now when you have so many people that are so highly levered. Also, you know, there's a lot of institutional money that is in the market now, that was not in the market at all in 2017. And these institutional investors, these are not your typical lifetime hodlers, I'm never going to sell no matter what. They are not in Bitcoin because they believe in it. It's going to change the world. They're ideologically wedded to it, and they're just going to go down with the ship, and they're going to hold down to zero no matter what. You don't have that kind of fanaticism among these institutions, they just bought Bitcoin because they thought they could make a profit. That's it. They're only there to make money. This is not you know, a, a political statement. They want returns. And they jumped on a moving train because they thought it was going to continue to keep moving in the same direction. So if all of a sudden the whole thing collapses, which nobody was expecting, right? I remember a lot of these pumpers were trying to say that Bitcoin had de-risked, that since Bitcoin was now so much higher, that it actually was less risky than when it was lower. And I remember talking about how that was a bunch of nonsense. I mean, I think that might have been one of Michael Saylor's uh, points, but I think it wasn't just him. There were a lot of guys saying that there's a lot less risk in the market because now it's a lot higher. And I think people bought into this BS. But obviously, when they get shocked back into reality by seeing Bitcoin collapsing, and in fact, now all the people that were saying, oh, don't worry, Bitcoin isn't risky anymore because it's so high. Now they're repeating the same old garbage. Well, this is just how Bitcoin is. This is the price you pay for tremendous returns. I mean, we're up 10 times more than the S&P. And so this is how Bitcoin works. You got to prepare for 50% declines that can happen anytime. But that kind of volatility is the price you pay for these great returns. Meanwhile, they were suckering people into the market by pretending that you no longer had to pay that price. And now when they're proven wrong, they're going back to the same old song and dance. But no asset where it could drop by 50% in, in, in a span of a couple of weeks is not a safe haven. It's not low risk. It's not a store of value. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't tell people, yes, this is par for the course. You have to expect these massive collapses 
when you own Bitcoin and then at the same time say you're buying a safe haven or store value. It's either a highly speculative asset that is extremely volatile or it's a store of value, a safe haven. You can't be both. Bitcoin is trying to be both. It's actually going to end up being neither. And, you know, a lot of people try to say, well, the fact that it's a store of value because it's gone up so much in the past 10 years. And so this volatility is just something you have to accept in order to have those kind of gains. The problem is the fact that Bitcoin went up so much in the past 10 years, that does not prove that it's going to keep going up over the next 10 years. Nothing that happened in the past guarantees that it's going to happen in the future. The only thing that seems guaranteed is the volatility. Bitcoin could crash, but there's no guarantee that it's going to keep going up. In fact, all the volatility may be to the downside. But getting back to these institutional investors, so when they're staring at 15, 20, 30 percent or greater losses, losses that they didn't expect because they were sold a bill of goods about how Bitcoin had been de-risked. And now with all these institutions coming in and it was so mainstream that those big drops were a thing of the past when they realize that they're not, that they're here to stay, I think a lot of these institutions who dip their toe in the water are going to pull their toe back out of the water. They're going to cut their losses and run. They're just going to move on to something else. They're going to be done with Bitcoin because they have discipline. Unlike a lot of retail investors who are going to hold till eternity, institutional investors don't have that kind of time frame. And they also have investors and they have to explain their trades and their actions. So they are not married to Bitcoin. They were dating it. And you know what? It was a bad date. Bitcoin is very erratic and psychotic. And so they are going to break up and they're going to look for a prettier, less emotional girl to date. And another thing that is going to help pressure Bitcoin and why this bear market in Bitcoin may be much bigger than the bear market in 2018 is the sheer number of alternative cryptocurrencies that exist today that did not exist in 2017. I mean, I don't remember the exact number in 2017. Maybe it was less than 100. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I mean, it was a very small number compared to today. In fact, as I'm looking on coin market cap today, we finally went above 10,000. As I'm recording this podcast on Saturday morning, there are now 10,003 cryptocurrencies. So, Bitcoin now has more than 10,000 competitors. It did not have all of these competitors back in 2018. So how is Bitcoin going to make new highs given the fact that it's such a crowded field and there are so many other cryptocurrencies people can buy? Because again, there is no actual use for Bitcoin other than as a speculative token. People buy Bitcoin because they want to speculate in cryptocurrencies. Well, they can also speculate in 10,000 other cryptocurrencies. So Bitcoin is sharing the stage with 10,000 competitors. That's why I've been saying all along this 21 million artificial cap on the supply means nothing. You're not scarce if you've got 10,000 competitors that people could buy to basically do the same thing, which is hopefully appreciate. In fact, look at what happened last week with Dave Portnoy. He's now pumping a altcoin called Safe Moon. And of course, you know, 
who could not want safe moon? I mean, you're going to go to the moon safely. I mean, everybody wants a coin that's going to go to the moon, yet this one can get there safely. How do you know? Well, because it says so. Although I don't know what's going to stop somebody else from coming up with safe Mars. I mean, Mars is even farther than the moon. Well, what about safe uh, Jupiter? Hey, maybe somebody will come up with safe Pluto. I know Pluto's not a planet anymore, but it's way the hell up there. And so I'd rather have my investment go to Pluto than to go to the moon, especially if I can get there safely. But, you know, the gimmick of safe moon is that every time somebody sells, right, if somebody panics and does the old thinkable and they get out, right, because the whole thing is like you got to hold, right? Hold on for dear life. Never sell, right? You're a trader if you sell. So you just got to hold, right? If we all just hold, we can all live in the same delusion that we're all rich because nobody ever spends. But the gimmick of Safe Moon is that every time some sucker sells, everybody who doesn't sell gets some of their coin. I guess there's some kind of way that you get a little bit more Safe Moon every time somebody who owns some Safe Moon sells it. And so that's the gimmick on this one. And it's an extra incentive not to sell because then you get coins from the ones who do. So because of this, Dave Portnoy is now pumping up this particular crypto, which again is competing with Bitcoin. It didn't even exist in 2018. And now it's one of another 10,000 competitors where back then you had a handful of competitors and Bitcoin really was in the limelight, maybe by itself. Now it's got to share the limelight with all these other altcoins that have high profile people like Dave Portnoy pumping them up. You know, I had this guy contacted me, wanted to know if I would back a coin that he wanted to start, right? It shows you how many different coins are coming out. And he's not the first guy to contact me about trying to utilize my name to promote some kind of cryptocurrency. I mean, I could have made a lot of money personally in the past attaching my name and my brand to one of these shit coins, but I refused to do it. Even to the degree that I said, hey, I've got this coin and I don't want anyone to buy it, but I got it anyway. I mean, I know somebody would buy it and I don't want that kind of money. I don't, I don't want to make money that way. I don't want to con people and rip them off and pump and dump some BS coin. But the funny thing about this guy's idea, and it made me laugh, you know, when he told me about it, but he wanted to come out with a cryptocurrency where you can only buy it at a price that's higher than the previous buy meaning that it could only go up, right? So the coin is guaranteed to go up because it can't go down because you're not allowed to sell it if you're selling it at a price that's lower than the previous trade. And of course, you know, this whole thing does typify the mania because I could see somebody buying that thinking, oh my God, I can't lose. The price can never go down. The price can only go up. Of course, the problem with the logic is once you buy it, once other people don't want it, you can never get out because if you can't find somebody willing to pay a higher price than the previous price, then you can't sell. And it doesn't matter if the price isn't going down if you can't sell, because if you can't sell, the price may as well be zero. But I guess what everybody can do is they can operate under the same illusion. Hey, I've got this 
cryptocurrency and it's worth all this money. But of course, I can't sell it because there's no market, but I can still pretend that it has all this value because look at the price. But in reality, that is what all these Bitcoin holders are doing. They think they have all this money, but all they have is Bitcoin. They haven't sold. They don't actually have money until they sell their Bitcoin. The problem is by the time they sell their Bitcoin, it's not going to be worth any money. So they're not going to have anything. Now, the other thing, too, that Bitcoin is going to have to contend with during this bear market that it really didn't have to contend with during the 2018 bear market is all the competitors in the stock market. Because if you want to speculate on Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, you don't just choose from 10,000 altcoins, but you also have a lot of publicly traded stocks that you could buy that potentially have leverage to Bitcoin, such as MicroStrategy, right? MicroStrategy owns all this Bitcoin. So a lot of people may just buy MicroStrategy as a proxy for Bitcoin. Same thing with Coinbase, right? Or the Grayscale Investment Trust, right? I mean, this trust is a big competitor for Bitcoin now, especially since it's trading at a discount, a big discount to NAV. Now a lot of people who want to buy Bitcoin, hey, why should I buy Bitcoin? I can buy GBTC and I'm buying a dollar's worth of Bitcoin for 90 cents or 85 cents or 80 cents, whatever the discount happens to be. And remember, here is a big factor. During the big run-up to 65,000, GBTC was the biggest buyer of Bitcoin. And where did GBTC get the money to buy Bitcoin? By issuing shares at a premium to investors who sent them cash. And then they would take that cash that they got from investors who were getting a great deal because they were getting stock at NAV and immediately having a premium price, right? Instant profit. But now Grayscale was taking all that cash and going and buying more Bitcoin, pushing up the price. And now as the price went up and more people wanted to buy GBTC, the premium kept going up. And so it was easier and easier for Grayscale to keep selling new shares to get more cash to buy more Bitcoin. Well, now that GBTC is trading at a big discount, nobody is going to give the company cash for shares to buy Bitcoin. Because if you give the company cash, they issue shares at NAV. Well, why would you want to get shares at NAV from the company when you can just go into the market and buy them for a 10 to 20% discount from NAV? So now all of the demand for Bitcoin that gets diverted to GBTC, none of that is going to make its way into Bitcoin itself. It's just permanently there at Grayscale. And of course, Grayscale ends up being a major seller of Bitcoin because there is a 2% management fee that has to be paid to Grayscale. Well, where does the fund get the management fee? Well, it gets it by selling its Bitcoin. So that didn't exist. That problem didn't exist in 2018. But you've also got all these other stocks. You've got Riot Blockchain. You've got Galaxy Digital. You got Square. You got all these other companies now that have a a, a Bitcoin theme. And in fact, take a look at what's happened to these stocks. MicroStrategy is down 65% from its peak price. It was down 5% on Friday, but it's now down 65%. Massive bear market. Look at Coinbase. Coinbase only came public five weeks ago. 
Right now, the stock is down 48% in five weeks. It was down 4% on Friday. Now, I don't know if this is a record. I mean, I'm sure there must be an IPO that's been worse than Coinbase, but it's got to be, you know, in the top as far as worst ever IPOs. And in particular, if you contrast it with all the hoopla, all the hype and the fanfare with which this IPO came out. I mean, it's got to be the biggest failure of an IPO versus expectations, right? There were so much expectations and I talked about it on the podcast about how ridiculous this was and how it was going to be a buy the rumor, sell the fact. But this thing was so hyped up and so highly anticipated. And to be in this type of a bear market down almost 50% during the first five weeks of trading, uh, Tesla too. I mean, Tesla is now kind of wedded to Bitcoin based on Elon Musk's affiliation with Bitcoin, plus the fact that Tesla has a bunch of Bitcoin on its balance sheet. Tesla stock dropped about 1%, just under 1% on Friday, but it's now down 35%. In fact, Tesla has been down for five consecutive weeks. I'm not sure the last time that happened to Tesla. I don't know if that's ever happened to Tesla. I'd have to do some research, but five consecutive down weeks, 35%, Tesla decisively in a bear market. Again, GBTC, Bitcoin Trust, down 48%. 9% decline on Friday. Look at Riot Blockchain. Stock was down 5.5% Friday, but it's down 71% from its peak price. That's probably the worst performer as far as declines of any of these stocks. But the worst performer yesterday was Galaxy Digital. This stock on Friday dropped by 16.5% in one day. The stock is now down 60% from its peak. Probably the best performer uh, is Square because Square actually has a whole other business. Bitcoin is just part of it. But Square is down 29% from its peak, down 2.4% on Friday. It's in a bear market. And look at Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation, which is probably the ARK fund that's most closely associated with Bitcoin because Kathy Wood thinks it's a great innovation. This stock actually held up pretty well on Friday. It was only down seven-tenths of a percent. So, you know, didn't do that bad. It could have been worse, although it will be worse uh, in the days and weeks ahead. But the fund is down 34% from its peak. And remember, this is not just one stock. This is an entire fund. So this thing is diversified with a whole bunch of names, yet despite being diversified, you are down 34%. You are in a huge bear market. And you got to keep in mind, when you're looking at how much these stocks are down, you have to bear in mind that the overall market is barely down. Look at the Dow Jones. The Dow Jones is off just 2.5% from its high. In fact, the S&P is only down 2% from its high. I mean, it's not even close to a correction, let alone a bear market. Even the NASDAQ is not officially in a correction. It's only down 5.2% from its high. The market that's retreated the most from its high is the Russell 2000, but still it's only down 6%. So you have huge bear markets in every stock related to crypto even though the overall market isn't even close to being in a bear market, it's not even in a correction. 
You know, a lot of people who buy life insurance make the mistake of buying whole life, but most people don't need whole life. What you need is term. You need to buy insurance for a particular period of time and you need to get the most insurance coverage you can for the money. And the reason you buy life insurance is because in the unlikely event that you die, your family may not be able to take care of itself without the income that you're earning. And it's because of the insurable interest of your family members that you go out and buy insurance. When you buy whole life insurance, you don't nearly get as much coverage for the money because there, in theory, is going to be a cash value left for you in the event that you don't die. But it doesn't matter what happens if you don't die. You're only buying the insurance in case you do die. And if you do die, you want the largest possible payment to your surviving family members. Meanwhile, in an era of high inflation, the cash value of your life insurance is going to get destroyed. So who cares? Just buy term. And if prices go up, you can always increase your coverage. And Ladder makes it quick and easy to get covered for term life insurance. Just log on with your phone or laptop and apply. And within minutes, you'll find out if you're instantly approved. After that, you can decide whether to move forward. The plans are offered at personalized rates that can flex as your needs change, which includes inflation. The prices are affordable and there's no hidden fees and you can cancel any time. And since life insurance gets more expensive as you get older, now is the best time to apply. And once you do, you can cross it off your list. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold. But I want to compare what's going on to the price of Bitcoin to the price of gold, right? Because all the Bitcoiners want to say that Bitcoin is digital gold. It's gold 2.0. It's better than gold in every way. Bitcoin is going to take gold's market share. In fact, the entire addressable market really for Bitcoin is a function of taking gold's market cap, its safe haven, store of value, inflation hedge market cap, and it's going to be transferred to Bitcoin. Well, while the media was pumping the hell out of Bitcoin over the past couple of weeks, as the prices collapsed by 40% during those weeks, and you know, I've never really seen, especially on CNBC, one network so incredibly fixated on a particular asset and doing so much to pump up the price. I mean, pretty much getting almost exclusively nonstop bullish coverage. In fact, CNBC gave Michael Saylor an entire segment yesterday to talk his book and pump Bitcoin, which is a lot of time for any national media outlet to give to one person uninterrupted. It wasn't bull versus bear. It was just one-on-one with Saylor in which he kept going on and on and on about Bitcoin with one ridiculous, nonsensical comment after another, how Bitcoin is great, how Bitcoin's only going to go up, how you have to buy the dip and keep on buying. And it's the best performing asset and it's the greatest invention in the history of the world, all of his normal shtick. But CNBC gave him this platform to come on their air and try to stop the market from going down and pump it back up, knowing that MicroStrategy is highly leveraged long Bitcoin. It's not just that MicroStrategy 
took its balance sheet, right, the cash on its balance sheet, and put some of that into Bitcoin. It borrowed cash that wasn't even on its balance sheet. MicroStrategy sold convertible preferred stock and used the proceeds to buy more Bitcoin. So it borrowed to gamble. And now that the value of the digital tokens that it leveraged up to buy are collapsing, CNBC allows them to come on television and spend all this uninterrupted airtime trying to talk it up and trying to get more people to bail him out by buying the very digital asset that he went into debt to buy. Although I guess in fairness to CNBC, I did see Ron Insana of all people. I'm not a great Ron Insana fan, uh, but he came on and he was at least negative on Bitcoin. So I got to give him that. Now, he didn't hit all of the real reasons that he should be negative. He should be even more negative. But at least he said, hey, I think it's going to go down and I don't think you should buy it. And, you know, that was very rare to have somebody come on CNBC and be negative on Bitcoin, although they do have some people. I mean, you may have one guy be negative for every 10 or 20 guys who are positive. So they play lip service uh, to allowing Bitcoin bears on, although they would never have a bear like me uh, be on somebody that's really, really bearish. So they look for little cubs, right? Because uh, they don't want to be too bearish. And another thing I noticed is when they do have a bull on there, like Michael Saylor, they're very respectful of their position. They pretty much agree with it. They really worship at the altar of the Bitcoin bull. But when you do get a guy who is bearish on Bitcoin, he ends up getting into an argument with the host. It becomes a bull versus bear debate where the bear, the guest, ends up arguing with the bullish hosts because they keep challenging the guy who's bearish as, hey, what about this? And did you consider that? But they never have that type of challenge when somebody is bullish because they just agree. So while CNBC has been completely focused on Bitcoin, and kind of ignoring the fact that it's in a bear market, although it talks about the declines. But if you just looked at all the coverage, you would think the thing was making new highs based on all of the bullishness and all of the Bitcoin people that are constantly invited on their air. But while Bitcoin is collapsing, despite all this pumping and all this media attention, what's happened to gold? Gold was up last week. In fact, Gold has now been up for three weeks in a row. In fact, it's up six out of the seven prior weeks. Gold closed at 1,880. This is a 20-week high for the price of gold. In fact, if you just look at it on days, gold has now risen for seven consecutive days. Sure, it was only up maybe four bucks yesterday, but it was still up seven days in a row. In fact, gold has risen on 12 of the past 13 days and where it closed on Friday, it's now above its 50-day moving average for the first time since January. So gold is in a solid bull market, continues to make new highs in obscurity. There is really no coverage of gold, yet despite its lack of coverage, it keeps going up. In fact, all the pro-Bitcoin coverage basically bashes gold. But despite the fact that gold keeps getting bashed, it keeps going up. And this is happening even though yields, long-term bond yields, rose on the week. Gold shrugged that off. Yet Bitcoin, despite the fact that it's constantly getting pumped, is being dumped. And one of the things, too, that I always 
found very uh, interesting about CNBC's love affair with Bitcoin is the fact that they have a similar love affair with the Fed. I mean, they love the Fed. They've always loved the Fed at CNBC. The Fed could do no wrong. They're geniuses. I mean, in Fed, they trust, right? They put all their faith in the wisdom of the Federal Reserve and the central bankers, which, of course, is the opposite of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is all about the Fed is reckless, the Fed is irresponsible, the Fed is going to destroy the dollar, and so, therefore, you need to buy Bitcoin. Well, if everyone on CNBC loves the Fed and loves the dollar, then they should hate Bitcoin. I mean, why like Bitcoin if you love the Fed? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Now, the other reason, of course, that CNBC likes Bitcoin is because they have all these advertisers, Grayscale in particular, but a few others. So you can say maybe they love money more than they hate Bitcoin. And because the Bitcoin promoters are throwing so much cash at them, well, that's why they love Bitcoin. And in fact, if they didn't love Bitcoin, maybe the advertisers wouldn't be advertising. And so that's why they keep inviting on all of these guests from the Bitcoin industry or the cryptocurrency industry as if they're somehow unbiased and ask them, hey, what what are their thoughts on Bitcoin and should people buy the dip? And of course, it's going to go to the moon and they're very bullish. But I think there's another reason apart from just their own uh, greed as to why they like Bitcoin. They hate gold. CNBC and the financial establishment always hates gold. And there's an old expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so if Bitcoin is the enemy of gold, right? Because Bitcoin is going to replace gold. Bitcoin is the new gold. Bitcoin is going to take gold's market cap and you're CNBC and you don't like gold and you don't want people to buy gold. And now you've got all these Bitcoin people bashing gold and saying, don't buy gold, buy Bitcoin. Now all of a sudden, hey, Bitcoin is great because Bitcoin is going to take demand away from gold. So I think it's interesting that a lot of the people who hate gold love Bitcoin because the people who love Bitcoin fundamentally, the purest, the real Bitcoin guys, they don't hate gold. They want Bitcoin to be gold. They like gold so much, they created Bitcoin to replicate gold. That's why it's the new gold. It's supposed to be gold even better. But the guys on CNBC or the Main Street, the Wall Street establishment, they hated gold from the beginning. Why would they want to improve on something they hate? Because if Bitcoin is better than gold and if the financial establishment hated gold, well, they should hate Bitcoin even more for being better than the thing that they hated. But they love it because they think it might weaken gold. In fact, a perfect example is an op-ed piece that was written by Paul Krugman. And it was actually a pretty good piece when it comes to Paul Krugman's criticism of Bitcoin. He got it right on Bitcoin, and he actually made some good points in his criticism, I mean, points that I've made uh, in criticizing uh, Bitcoin. But where Krugman got it wrong is his criticism of gold. But he criticized gold in exactly the same way that a lot of the Bitcoin buyers and Bitcoin pumpers are criticizing gold. So Krugman and the people who are selling Bitcoin as being better than gold have the exact same criticism of gold, and they're both wrong. You see, what Krugman said is that Bitcoin has no value, it has no use, but he said, you know what? 
Maybe it'll be around for a while anyway. Maybe people will keep on buying it. After all, look at how many people are still buying gold. People have been buying gold for thousands of years, right? But according to Krugman, people have been buying gold for thousands of years, despite the fact that it has no use, that there's nothing you can do with gold. And even though there's nothing you can do with it and it's useless, people have been buying it for thousands of years. So if people are willing to buy gold for thousands of years, despite the fact that it's good for nothing and useless, well, maybe people will be willing to buy Bitcoin for some number of years, uh, despite the fact that it's useless. But again, Krugman keeps talking about gold as if it's useless. Of course, it's not useless. If it was useless, people wouldn't have been buying it for thousands of years. The only reason that gold has been valued and bought for thousands of years is specifically because it's so useful. Gold is the most useful metal on the planet. You know, I think it's laughable. The people who say that gold is useless, they never say copper is useless or nickel or zinc or any of these other metals. No, they're valuable. They have lots of uses, but somehow gold has no uses. Gold has more uses than any one of those metals. Gold is a better metal than any of those metals. In fact, the main reason that gold isn't used more often is because it's too expensive. And one of the reasons it's too expensive is because it's so scarce. There's a lot more nickel, there's a lot more copper, there's a lot more zinc in the world than there is gold. So gold is better than those metals in that it has better properties and it's more useful, but there's not as much of it. In fact, because gold is so rare and so useful, that's why people hold on to it because they know other people are going to need it in the future. You know, a lot of people keep pointing out, hey, Peter, you're holding on to gold, but you don't actually use the gold, right? You don't need it. You don't make jewelry out of it. You don't make computer chips out of it. I know. I don't, but I know somebody else will. Somebody in the future, some jeweler in the future, some chip company in the future you know, is going to need gold, and I have it. I am storing that gold not for my own use, but for somebody else's use. But the fact is, when you're storing Bitcoin, you're not storing anything that anybody can use. The same thing with all of these other uh, cryptocurrencies. Nobody can use it today and nobody can use it tomorrow. Now, the fact that you can trade it, that's not a use because the person who's buying it from you can't use it either. And he can't store it for anybody else in the future to use it because nobody could use it in the present. So no one's going to use it in the future. It's just a gaming token. But Krugman is trying to compare Bitcoin to gold to discredit gold. That's his goal. That's why the establishment wants to compare Bitcoin to gold, because they don't like gold. And they want to say that, hey, gold like Bitcoin has no value when gold has tremendous value. Only Bitcoin has none. So when Krugman talks about gold, he talks about this occult, a mystique that for some unexplained reason, people just worship this worthless metal. And so the same thing is going on with Bitcoin. In the case of Bitcoin, that is exactly what's going on. It is a cult. People are infatuated with it or worship it or or look at it as if it's going to change the world. It's the greatest invention since the wheel. It's going to cure every problem, right? Every time I, I put out a tweet, somebody tweets, 
Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin solves this. Every problem that exists in the world is going to be solved by Bitcoin. Bitcoin is going to cure income inequality. It's going to make the world a better place. I even hear people saying that it's going to clean up the environment. Despite the fact that it uses all this energy, it's somehow going to lead the clean energy revolution. I mean, anything that's wrong in the world, people who own Bitcoin just assume that Bitcoin is going to fix it. That is a cult. That is an infatuation. And in fact, that's why the people who promote Bitcoin or love Bitcoin, that's why they want to attack people that don't believe it. They haven't joined the cult. In fact, a client of mine contacted his broker last week to give me a message. And the message was that if I don't stop bashing Bitcoin on my podcast, he's going to close his account. And so I told his rep to tell the client, well, then you're going to have to close your account because I am not going to change my position on Bitcoin just because it offends one of my clients who owns Bitcoin. You know, I'm trying to educate my clients if they own Bitcoin to get out. <laughs> you know, I think they're going to lose a lot of money. Now, this guy claimed that I was doing a bad job as a portfolio manager because his account with me, even though it was up and he acknowledged that the account was doing very well in recent years, he said that I'm still behind Bitcoin and that if he had only put all of his money into Bitcoin, he would have done much better. And therefore, I'm not doing a good job managing his portfolio because I'm not beating Bitcoin. Well, if that is your metric, if that is your benchmark, nobody is doing a good job managing a portfolio because nobody has beaten Bitcoin. But what you have to do when you analyze a portfolio. You can't just look at the returns. You have to adjust the returns for risk. And anybody who made a big return in Bitcoin did so by assuming an incredible amount of risk. As a portfolio manager, I don't want to assume that type of risk for the portfolios I'm managing. And so, yes, I'm going to underperform Bitcoin on the way up, just like every other money manager. But I'm certainly outperforming Bitcoin on the way down. Bitcoin has collapsed. Our accounts are near their highs. They're not 50% below their highs. Now, another thing I get a lot of crap for online is how much money I've supposedly cost people over the years because I've been telling them not to buy Bitcoin for the past 10 years and everybody who followed my advice missed out on the opportunity of being a millionaire or a billionaire. And so, you know, I'm a disgrace. Well, A, I'm not the only financial professional uh, to have cautioned people about Bitcoin. But, you know, I never told people that they couldn't gamble in Bitcoin. I just told them that they were gambling. I said early on the price could go way up before it crashes. I just didn't know how high it would go before it crashed. And therefore, I just didn't want to buy it. But other people may have thought that they wanted to speculate in Bitcoin and they could have bought it. In fact, I know a lot of people, I meet them all the time, that tell me that they bought Bitcoin because of me. Even though I was criticizing it, they ended up buying it despite the fact that I didn't like it. And a lot of them even found out about it because of me. Uh, they researched it. And even though I didn't like it, they bought it. So there are plenty of people who actually bought Bitcoin despite my caution uh, that it was a bubble. But I didn't tell people that, they couldn't buy it. I just said, if you buy it, you better be careful because it's going to crash and it's gambling. It's not investing. And I think I was right. Just because a gamble paid off doesn't change the nature of what people were doing, which was gambling 
not investing. But I think that a lot of people who got into Bitcoin early on are going to end up losing money despite the fact that they got in early on. And the reason they're going to end up losing money is because A, they didn't get out, but B, they averaged up. I think a lot of people who got into Bitcoin when it was really cheap only put a small amount of money when it was really cheap because they didn't want to risk too much money on an unknown quantity. And I think as Bitcoin really started to go up, they didn't realize that they got lucky. They thought they were geniuses. And as the price went higher and higher, they put more money into Bitcoin. Only now they started putting serious money into Bitcoin, not play money into Bitcoin. And so I think when the price collapses, even if Bitcoin, let's say, goes down to 10,000, I think by far most people will be down in Bitcoin, even the people who bought some below 1,000 or below 100, because if they continuously averaged up and bought more and more, and then the price collapses, their overall price could be down, even though they still have some coins that they bought on the cheap. And of course, cheap being a relative term, but they're going to be down. And so I think I will have kept a lot of people out of this Bitcoin casino, and so they're not going to lose money. Meanwhile, the people that got into the Bitcoin casino, even though for a while they had a lot of chips on the table and they looked like they were big winners, by the time they actually leave that casino, they're going to be broke. Anyway, let me circle back, though, and talk a little bit more about gold again and, and why it's going up, meaning inflation, which is driving the price of gold higher. We got the numbers for the Fed's balance sheet on Thursday, as we always do. And the balance sheet shot up by $92.2 billion for the week. The balance sheet is now at a record $7.923 trillion. And in fact, I think probably already, and we'll get the numbers next Thursday, but I think there's a good chance that the next number is going to reveal that the balance sheet is now above $8 trillion. That's almost double the peak. I think we got to maybe four and a half trillion following the financial crisis. But of course, it took the Fed, I don't know, seven, eight years uh, to do that. And, and we've now almost replicated that or more than replicated that, actually, because the balance sheet started out more than 500 billion. So we've already added more to the balance sheet than was added during all the years following the 2008 financial crisis with QE1, QE2, QE3, Operation Twist. And again, what this proves is that I was right and Bernanke was wrong from the beginning because what Bernanke testified to back in 2008 or 9, I forget when he was in front of Congress, but there was a Republican congressman who accused Ben Bernanke of monetizing the debt. And Ben Bernanke denied that accusation. And he said the Fed is not monetizing the debt because none of the debt we're buying is going to stay on our balance sheet. Bernanke said, we're just buying these bonds temporarily and we're going to sell them back into the market 
once this temporary emergency is over. And so therefore, we're not monetizing the debt. Monetizing the debt is when the Fed buys the debt and then holds the debt through maturity. That's monetization. Well, that is exactly what the Fed has done because all the bonds that the Fed bought back then are still on its balance sheet. And in fact, to the extent that any of those bonds matured, the Fed simply rolled over the cash into new bonds. So we are now, based on Ben Bernanke's own definition of debt monetization, we are now monetizing the debt. But of course, when Ben Bernanke said the Fed was not monetizing the debt back then, I came out and said he was lying. He is monetizing the debt because that debt's never going to get sold. That's what I was saying. The Fed had checked into a monetary roach motel, right? It checked in, but it could never check out, meaning the bonds it was buying, it was never going to sell. So the Fed was monetizing the debt, and that is what it is doing. The U.S. is now officially a banana republic without the bananas. And because the Fed is monetizing the debt, the debts are going to keep getting bigger and bigger, and therefore the monetization is going to continue, and it's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the balance sheet is going to blow up, the money supply is going to soar, and consumer prices are going through the roof. Now, everybody is still claiming that consumer prices are transitory. And, you know, I thought it was funny that some of these people are now pointing to the pullback in lumber, the correction in the price of lumber as an example of transitory inflation. Because they're saying, look, you see, lumber prices were going way up, but now they're coming down. And that proves that inflation is transitory. First of all, lumber prices dropped, but you have to keep the drop in perspective. You have to look at the size of the gain that preceded that drop. And in fact, as of today, because the price of lumber was up 4.5% Friday, I think at one point lumber prices had pulled back about 30% from their highs. But as of Friday, we're only 16% below the high. But we are still up 260% on the year. So how can anybody look at a commodity that's up 260% in a year and say, aha, this proves that inflation is transitory just because it used to be up 280% and now it's only up 260%, inflation is transitory. What a joke. This doesn't prove anything. Nothing is transitory. The price is way up, even though it's off the high, it's still way off the low and not even close to transitioning back to where it was. And in fact, what even makes it more ridiculous is if you understand the reason for the decline in the price of lumber. Lumber prices got so high that demand stopped, that people who wanted lumber because they wanted to build had to cancel their projects, right? That's why we saw that big drop in home starts. And it's not just home. I mean, anybody who was planning on a major project that required a lot of lumber, given how expensive lumber is, a lot of those plans have been put on hold. So the huge surge in the price of lumber was destroying demand for lumber. Why anybody would draw comfort from something like that. So saying, hey, yes, the inflation is transitory because these huge increases that we're going to see in prices 
are going to cause people to stop buying, meaning we're going to have a huge recession. So don't worry about inflation. It's transitory because prices are going to go up so much, they're going to cause a recession. And so we don't have to worry about it. Well, why aren't we worried about that? Why aren't we worried about the recession? And again, this nonsense, I heard Steve Leisman again say the same BS on CNBC on Friday that, hey, one of the reasons we don't have to worry about inflation getting out of hand is precisely what I just said, that if prices go up, the higher prices will slow the economy and that slowing economy will bring the prices back down. Not necessarily. We could have stagflation. You can have a slowing economy where prices keep going up especially if the dollar crashes, which is exactly what I expect to happen. Because even though Americans will be consuming less, a weaker dollar means the rest of the world is going to be consuming more. So there's still going to be high demand for goods, just the demand is going to be coming from outside the United States. But Americans inside the United States still have to compete with that demand. So no, high unemployment is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for inflation. In fact, a weak economy is going to make inflation worse because the weaker the economy is, the more money the government's going to print to try to stimulate it. And so the more the dollar is going to fall. And so the more upward pressure we're going to get on prices. But of course, you know, everybody wants to talk about, oh, lumber is pulled back. Well, we haven't seen that big a pullback in other commodities. I mean, a little bit, but look at soybeans. Soybeans are up 80% in the past year. Corn is up 90% during the past year. Now, unlike lumber, yes, people can decide, hey, lumber prices are really high, so I'm going to put that project on hold. I'm not going to build whatever I was going to build. But you can't decide that you're not going to eat. Yep, corn and soybean prices are really up a lot, so I'm just not going to eat. I mean, yeah, some people maybe can go on a diet. Some people that are overeating, maybe they can eat less, but you got to eat something, right? You can't give up eating completely because the price of food is going up. In fact, when the price of food is going up, you have to give up doing other things because you need food and you're going to have to pay whatever the price is for that food. And so if food prices go way up, you stop buying other things. You keep buying food. The problem for the economy is what happens to the jobs of the people who were working, selling you the things that you're no longer buying because you're spending so much of your money on food. And of course, another thing is when you hear people trying to dismiss this due to the economy starting back, right? Oh, okay. Well, you know, the economy was shut down during COVID. And so these prices that are going up are just the economy restarting. That might work if you're talking about you know, how much does it cost to stay in a hotel or to fly in an airplane, right? Because those are things that actually stopped happening during the pandemic, right? People weren't traveling as much. So it made sense that hotel prices came down because nobody was checking in and that now those prices are going up and the same thing for airfare. But nobody stopped eating during the pandemic, right? Maybe they stopped eating in restaurants, but that means they ate more at home. Right. So food consumption did not go down. So you can't look at a 90 percent increase in corn prices and say, yeah, it's the result of the economy reopening. Right. Nobody was buying corn. Nobody was eating any corn during the pandemic. But now that you know people don't have to wear masks, they're all going out and buying corn. And so it's this pent up demand for corn. That is the reason that these prices are going up. No, people were eating corn. They were eating soybeans the entire time. In fact, you could argue that maybe people ate more 
during the pandemic because that's all they had to do. They stayed at home and they stuffed their faces with food. So there is no pent up demand for eating. And so you can't look at these huge increases in commodity prices, food prices, and somehow attribute that to the reopening of the economy so that you can dismiss it as being transitory. 